Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Hooray for Hollywood podcast with Tom Johnson. Today, Tom will share his insights and reflections on the Turner Classic Movie Festival. I'm your host, John Guzan, and now, here's Tom. Hey, hi, John. Thanks so much for that intro. Uh, As I've done for the past six years, uh, earlier this month, I was at the uh, TCM Classic Film Festival that's held uh, every year in Hollywood. It was the 10th annual film festival, which was, uh, you know, quite an earmark for it, and... Mm. uh, it was great. It was. Uh, it's always very, very, very interesting, you know, to go there to see, you know, old friends that I've I've seen over right. the past five or six years, and to even make new friends and to see some of the hosts that you see on the TCM Film Channel. Uh, they were all there. Uh, my old friend uh, Dennis Miller showed up right. for the opening night press party. I had interviewed him years and years ago up in uh, at the Marriott. Uh, resort over in Santa Barbara where uh, he lived near there and he just walked over there and we did this long interview right. and he, he was very polite he faked like he remembered the interview which was <laughs> nice and uh, I thought it was great and I I never do this John but I said well you know for old time's sake I kind of got him caught him flat but I said why don't we do a selfie and he was all for that <laughs> and I have this iPhone case on my on my um, phone uh-huh. and it's a uh, a dance picture of Fred Astaire and so he said oh my god that's you know that's Uh, fantastic that's great and I said well you know who this is and he said of course it's Freddie Astaire and I said well uh you know a person uh earlier in the day asked me why I had Pee Wee Herman on my uh iPhone case and he was a gas Miller just kind of went he said oh my god you know you're in trouble when Fred Astaire is mistaken for Paul Rubin he couldn't get over it oh yeah uh, yeah he was he was just kind of crazy. But um, one of the funny things is in the TCM club, which is where a lot of the interviews and sort of special sections happen, they had their usual array of costumes and posters, and they had what was billed as the most complete Darth Vader costume in existence, which, wow. uh, I mean, it was amazing. It was like the whole getup. I don't know where they got it or if, you know, sure. they, they, they talked to, you know, John Landis or whoever. But it um, it was amazing, and uh, about the only thing it didn't have was a 24-hour guard standing next to it because uh, <laughs> I think one of these costumes went for like I don't know how like six figures. It was auctioned or right, something right, recently, yeah. so just crazy. But the pool party that night, but they always have. Oh yeah, the I pool think party. I mentioned this, John, before they have pool parties every night yeah. down at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel pool. Right. And it's usually some sort of a campy or sort of funny audience favorite film. Yeah. And this year they had, uh, the first night they had uh, Ocean's Eleven, the original, uh-huh. Frank Sinatra uh-huh. and the Rat Pack. Oh, great. And uh, it was great. They had a small sort of kind of hit band playing old chestnuts from the great American songbook Harlem Nocturne <laughs> by... Uh, Earl Hagen and Pennies from Heaven, Take Five, all that stuff, and uh, it was it was great. There was a I sat next to this couple from Asheville, North Carolina, Thomas Wolf Country, and yeah. uh, I asked them like, and I said, oh, we do. I asked people what brings them to TCM, and it was their first time at a TCM film festival, and they said we're the biggest fans in Asheville. <laughs> We've been fans ever since the TCM network you know, it became, you know, existed. So they said we had to finally come here to see what this was all about. And they were just loving it. They were, they were really loving it. And, and, 
it was funny because uh, that that night Ben Mankiewicz was uh, hosting mm-hmm. the pool party, and Angie Dickinson, who has a small role in Ocean's right, Eleven, right, she was right. a rat packer. Yes, yes, uh, came in, and she just looked fantastic, and she was sort of the 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 uh, the person that he interviewed, the diva of the night, and right, um, right. she said that that first night that they rehearsed in Vegas, Frank asked for her number and he, and she gave it to him, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, and, and, uh, she was and his love said, interest in that film, right? Pardon me? I said she was his love interest in, in Ocean's Eleven. She was. And you, that's very, very good. His ex-wife, very good. Yeah, I think. Yeah, she was. And, and, I mean, she was just, you know, she was fantastic. And she didn't have a lot of scenes, but right. that, was the, that was the film that kind of put her on the map as far as Frank and the Rat Pack went. Oh, yeah. And, she said that Sammy Davis Jr. was in it had clued Frank in about Angie being in the film. And uh, she said, quote, unquote, uh, Sammy told Frank that she'd be a gas in the film. So that's why he, <laughs> he said, well, let's take a look at her. And then when he saw her, they, uh, you know, they, they got her in the film. And, you know, it, oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's so funny because she was saying that uh, to Ben Mankiewicz, like, you get me drunk all the time and I tell you things I'd never tell anyone else. You know, she's saying this, of course, in front of like 800 people that are all they're all just laughing. And, and a really good question. I thought this was a great question. Um, she was wearing a black beret and a white suit. She just looked fabulous. She was, I think, in, I think she's in her early 80s uh-huh. now. And she, uh, Ben asked her, well, what about Frank? you know, infamous sort of, you know, one take thing, or did he do multiple takes, or what was the deal? Was he, did he get lazy and was he bored with the filming, so he never wanted to do more than one take? And she said, no, no, that, 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 she said he did do one take, but, but she said there was a reason for that. I've never heard this. I thought it was interesting. She said that athletes and musicians, who she considered Frank Sinatra to be, obviously, are, they're not actors. Right. They have to be perfect, pitch perfect, pitch perfect on the note. They don't fake it ever. Uh-huh. And 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 she said that's when that's why Frank, when he did a take and he knew he nailed it, he said that's it. I don't have to do another one. He knew himself so well right. because he was a musician. He was a singer, and he knew when he was either faking it or not coming through or whatever. Whereas a lot of she said all the rest of us actors we fake it for a living. That's what we do all the time. We're faking it constantly. Right. But she said Frank never did that. And she says athletes don't either, which I thought was I thought that was really kind of neat. I thought yeah. that was an interesting you know, you know that, sort of and that yeah, sort of harkens me back to um, to a podcast you had done earlier in the year, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, um, but it might have been the comedian that knew um, Sinatra was oh, Tom Dreesen. Right, I think yeah. Tom Dreesen was yeah. kind of mentioning the same thing about you know you know Sinatra you know Sinatra was just one of those one take guys, but it you know it harkens yeah. me back to that that conversation you had before. Um, you said you saw some folks that were fans that showed up for the first time. Is that still, um, you know, but you also see people that you've seen in the past. Um, right. So where would you kind of throw the audience? Would you say the audience is a little bit more still, you know, new people coming? Is it, um, you know, kind of, you know, those folks that come back time and time again? And is the festival growing? Do you see that there's, you know, it's it's definitely healthy? Right, right. That's a good question. You know, it, it's weird because, you know, I probably can answer that question better because of this 10th annual film festival that uh-huh. I just attended more than I could have with any other film festival because 
almost every film and every uh, special event, the host, Mankiewicz or uh, uh, Targer or Eddie Muller, the noir guy, whoever was hosting it or Alicia Malone, they would ask kind of preparatorily. They would say, well, you know, how many people have been here for all 10 years? And how uh-huh. many people have, they, they did this sort of head count. And whenever they said, how many people have come to every one of these film festivals, a ton of hands shot up. I mean, just a lot of them. Yeah. And, and more than, than, more than really just the newbies, you know, because then they say, how many is, is this, how many, uh, what festival is this vis-a-vis, is it your first film festival? And, you know, there'd always be some hands, but I was amazed at how many repeat uh, festival goers would, sh- you know, shoot their hands up when they were asked that question in almost every film and and every, uh, you know, sort of special breakout session. There were right. just a lot of people keep coming back. It's it's a real thing. And I did a little, uh, a little reco- uh, research, a little reporting uh, earlier because I wanted to know how well Tickets were selling at every level, how the passes, you know, the gold pass and uh-huh. the various other levels of passes. Right. And they were all sold out. They were all sold out like about a three, four weeks even before the festival. Wow. They had sold out every pass. There was waiting lists for every level of, of pass, including the, you know, the gold level, the, right. the, you know, which is the spotlight pass, I think is what they call it. And that's thousands of dollars. So, I don't, you know, call it a good economy, call it just devoted uh, TCM uh, film festival goers. People are coming to this thing, uh-huh. you know, and and they're coming from all over the country, as they always do. So right. I, I, I got to think that, it's, you know, the festival itself is in pretty good shape. Yeah. I mean, they, they are going through sort of a paradigm shift. Uh-huh. You know, as far as, you know, appealing to trying to appeal to younger, right. you know, uh, festival goers and viewers. That's why they have, you know, kind of a very diverse, uh, you know, a group of hosts. And, you know, they're trying. I mean, how many times can you invite even Saint and, and sure. Mel Brooks right. to a, you know, a film festival? After yeah. a while, it's like we've had them. So, yeah, and you like know, you mentioned, I, I it, 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 they're trying to kind of, you know, branch out. I don't know how well, though, John, that's. You know, gonna. You know, I don't know if that's going to be a huge success for the future. It might. They might transition into that pretty okay. But then there are a lot of people my age and, and older that you know they just want to see old movies. They don't right. want. You know, they're not as interested in you know Silver Streak or movies from you know the seventies right. or or whatever. You yeah. know, so I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, it's the it's it's that ever evolving, you know, um, definition of classic. I guess you know, once you have classic right. in the name, you can kind of go in many different directions, and they and they have, as you know, I mean, at least the channel itself, yeah. and you know what they what they uh, determine is 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 classic or not changes. Um, you know, the last question that I have, you know, about the attendance and 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 these people showing up, sure. I don't want to kind of belabor that too much, but. Um, do you feel like a lot of those people that have gone year after year are they are they LA centered or is it is it that kind of thing? Is it um, you know that that people are taking it as a vacation, just movie lovers all over the country, um, or do you feel like it's still got that LA feel to it, or will that have it anyway, just because it's it's there and it's Hollywood? Right, right. <clears throat> I think that's a good question too. Very good. Um, I think you know my my general sort of idea on this is that it's more 
it's more people from all over the country. That's just, uh-huh. you know, I, I talk to people, and, and every once in a while there'll be, you know, a person from the San Fernando Valley or uh-huh. L.A. that, you know, that come that come to it. Or, you know, there's a, there a guy that came all the way down from Pismo Beach, which is about a half-day's drive. That's Charles Nelson Riley country up there. Oh, right. So, I mean, you know, he, he's not a, uh, you know, he's not an L.A. local, but he even drew, drove a half day to, you know, see the films. But I just, I thought they're more like Asheville, North Carolina types. that right. just come from all over, and then they make it sort of a, an event. It's like, you know, three, three and a half, four days. So they just, <clears throat> they take kind of vacation time, and they just revel in it. Whereas I think a lot of, you know, Angelinos, you know, they're working or whatever, and they don't see it as a, as, as a vacation, it's, you know, in, in downtown Hollywood, right. Roosevelt. So, you know, there are certain people that, you know, I know some people in the industry that PR people and, and people at various studios that obviously come, some War Brother people, uh-huh. you know, that own, like, that rich catalog, the TCM catalog sure. pretty much, and right. they come to represent the studio. But a lot of locals, they just don't, I don't think it's really hugely on their radar just because it's in their backyard and why would they take work off to, you know, fight the traffic in Hollywood to see a film sure. or whatever. Right. Whereas, you know, if you're living in, uh, you know, Moline, Illinois or whatever, it's a, it's kind of a cool, great, wonderful, you know, divergent thing to do if you come out here and, you know, spend, you know, a week even. Sometimes I know that some of them come old, come early and then just do star tours and they go visit, you know, maybe they kind of get into a studio so they do a little bit of a tour or they go see the, the steps from uh, the music box, the Laurel and Hardy short, you know, that are still right, they, right, they, right. It's in Echo Park. They're still there. There's a plaque on the sidewalk. Or they, they visit the site of Chaplin's old studios, which um, now is well, lately, latest, was the Jim Henson studio. So, you know, that's just, yeah, that's kind of the thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much history in L.A. too, and as as you probably know, there's just that culture there. You could probably see a screening of of classic films more easily in L.A. than you can anywhere else. Don't let me slow you down from those great things there. I know I've kind of you know held you back, but what else was going on um, at the festival that you really kind of you know found a uh, connection with? Sure, no, I'd be happy to. Um, one of the uh, the sessions that I uh, attended at that club TCM, that's where they do a lot of, you know, people like Fred Ruse or this Juliet Taylor, who's a legendary casting director. She's cast 60 films. Uh, she's had 60 Oscar nominations, uh, sorry, and 12 wins as far as the people that she's cast. Jeff Daniels, Nathan Lane, Meryl Streep, she discovered all these people. And um, so she was, she took, you know, front and center in one of these club TCM sessions where she just talked about her career and it was sort of a, like, kind of like with the um, Dennis Miller thing, it was, it became sort of an old home week thing because I'm sitting there ready to take notes and this guy comes by and it's a guy I know from my coffee shop. He's an actor. His name is Sal Vescuzo. He's a really good actor. And, uh, you know, I said, Sal, what the hell are you doing here? You're in, it's the first time I've seen you in a suit. You know, and he says, uh, you know, Julia Taylor gave me my start, you know, uh, on, uh, you know, Pelham uh, 1, 2, 3 back in the okay. 60s. He played, a, you know, a, the cop that delivered the ransom. And, uh, you know, he's been an actor in Hollywood for 50 years. And he said, I just came here to represent and pay respect to Juliet. And I thought that was so great. Oh, yeah. And he said, based on what uh, Juliet did for him, he, uh, 
he's gotten residuals over the last 40 years that he says has amounted to probably six figures for doing the uncredited voice on MASH, the one that says, attention, attention, all personnel, incoming wounded, that's all, folks. You know, that weird thing that you hear in almost every episode. Uh And that was Selvis Scuso. I just didn't know that. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, it's the weird things that you find out, you know. And uh, But, yeah, he he just sat down, and uh, they had a nice uh, reunion, I think, at the end of the – at the end of her chat. But, um, yeah, she was really interesting. She said that, you know, casting directors in the early 60s when she started were, uh, they were con- they didn't have as much of a creative role. They were kind of like glorified secretaries, she said. But, <laughs> but you know, it was their job to add a new dimension and, and, and to bring in three or four people who would play any of these roles differently. She always said she didn't want to bring four people or three people to a director that would play the role in the same way, but look mm-hmm. different, obviously, because they were different people. She wanted right. three or four people to play the role, you know, who would give different takes on the character. And, and that's what really kind of, you know, she became known for. And, um, you know, she just had a great, she said when she started, there was this cultural upheaval. It was the, you know, era of panic and needle park, uh-huh. that movie with Al Pacino and, right. you know, it, it, LA actors, we're kind of getting short shrift. They, you know, the casting directors and a lot of the directors, the new directors wanted actors who were, you know, kind of seasoned in the, in New York theater. Uh-huh. And, and she said back then there was no crossover between English and American actors. They didn't do each other's accents. And now every English actor can do an American accent. Right. No Americans can do English accents. Right. So <laughs> she said it was, yeah, it's completely different now, but, um, her first film credit was uh, The Exorcist, she said. And uh, she said that was interesting because she discovered uh, Linda Blair, who had done a golden uh, mustard commercial. And she said she was just great and, uh, you know, thought that she'd be perfect in it, and she was. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, she said that uh, she loved Patty Chayefsky. She cast uh, Network, cast Taxi Driver, Scorsese, was a lovely man. He was decisive very real, but open to, you know, anyone's suggestions. She said, <clears throat> Woody Allen, she said, she, she, she cast like almost every one of his films. I mean, she's just cast a ton of them. Wow. She said that, you know, obviously he's a shy person. And, and he said, she, he told her, he felt that it would be a gift to the actors if the meetings between he and the actors were very brief. But she said, but Woody, the actors take the opposite approach. And which right. she said was true. They want they want to strut their stuff. They don't want they're not embarrassed. They're not, you know, shy like you. They want to show you what they can do. And he was just sort of, you know, he was just this squeamish guy uh-huh. that, you know, wanted to keep every meeting sort of short and sweet, but she had to kind of, you know, jolly him out of that. Interesting. And, um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I you know, I never would have figured that about, you know, I, I I like to pride myself, especially on early Woody films, of, of at least knowing them. Right. Um, and, and, and having seen them, it's kind of hard to keep up now to a certain level. But anyway, um, yeah. but, you know, it always seemed like it was just something he just kind of arranged, you know, um, and even recently. Um, but it's very interesting to think that he actually uses a casting director. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. She said, it, you know, her little Meryl Streep memory, she said she first saw Meryl Streep when she was an unknown in an off-Broadway show. 
But, you know, someone asked, well, was she a sensation? People recognized how great she was, and she said everyone knew it. It was uh. like the worst-kept secret. Everyone knew she was, <laughs> like, just, me- you know, mesmerizing. And she said it was her <clears throat> good fortune to give her the uh, her first film role in Julia, mm. uh, which I think actually maybe Deer Hunter was, but, you know. She said she had a, an, a just an absolutely lovely level of confidence that she was so confident yeah. of like everything she was going to do that it was just a pleasure to work with her. She's a consummate professional, which I mean that's always nice to hear, John. When you you know you hear someone that you really admire being talked about by someone who really knows them, and your illusions aren't shattered. You know, oh, yeah. they're basically affirmed. You know, it's like uh-huh. oh great. Right, right, yeah, so, and then you know, like you said, uh, Meryl Streep and Deer Hunter, and in Kramer versus Kramer, those those early yeah. films that she did are just you know kind of amazing. Now it's just kind of Meryl Streep. Everybody's just you know kind of knows what's going yeah, on. Yeah, those right. you know those roles. We've seen her in a million things, and 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 yeah, but but she's just you know she's a she's a treasure. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, one film I did see that uh, you know I had never seen before, and I always kind of wanted to see was Day for Night. And it's a Francois Truffaut film. It's 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 kind of a French version of the player, that Altman film. But it's it's not as funny and snarky and 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 sort of negative. It's actually very, very kind of cute and funny and not and 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 almost um, innocent in its way. It was made in the '60s, uh-huh. and it's about you know, making a movie. It's a movie about making a movie, and uh-huh. uh, it, it was really and Jacqueline Bissett stars in it, and she was you know just looks stunning in it. And if you'll remember, I think last year she was supposed to um, do yeah. the lead into Bullet. Right. They showed Bullet, but she, you know, canceled at the last minute because there was some sort of an accident that she had had that was sort of very vague and, you know, we didn't know what happened. But she appeared on stage for this and oh, she looked stunning. Mm. And it was so funny. And she, she, she began her spiel by saying, you know, ex- explaining what the accident was that, you know, she had either been in the shower and caught her arm on something and fell and ripped it and needed stitches. And she ended up going to Cedar sinai and was trying to, get, you know, contact anyone from the festival to tell them that, you know, she's losing course of blood. Right, right, yeah. They wouldn't be able to make it. And, you know, the audience is laughing. And she said, and so I feel that, you know, I needed to come here tonight <laughs> for this because, oh, my God, you know, I owe it to you people. And, you know, it was uh, it was very funny, actually. And Eddie Muller was the uh, the host for that and um yeah she was great she said she got the she was uh, quote-unquote besotted with jean moreau french actress and loved Truffaut. and this was like in the early 60s that she appeared in this movie and she said she had been out dancing at a club in paris which she told me during an interview years before so that actually corroborates with what she told me years (laughs) before she's not you know she's not lying through her teeth or trying to you know uh you know, a poster, any kind of story. And she said she got out of left field. She was staying on the left bank and out of left field got a call. And that it, it was sheer luck, she said, that they found her in that hotel because no one knew she was staying in that hotel. Mm-hmm. And she said she they, they had tried to contact her a year before, but her agent had said, you know, kind of dismissed it. Which she said, I would have killed my agent if I had known that. Right. It's a Francois Truffaut <laughs> film. Right, right, but right. But as a last resort, they just tried to reach out, and someone, I guess, found out what hotel she was in and, and contacted her directly. And she was, oh my God, yes. And, uh, you know, she, uh, yeah, she said that, um, 
it was just great. She, uh, oh, what are some of these notes here that I had? It's that, you know, she always looks for good directors, she said. She goes where the work is, and that's why she's considered sort of an international star, because not like an American, even a British star. She's fluent in, you know, French, very fluent, you know, as you can see in the in the movie, which is really, really charming. And she said one of her, you know, sleeper movies that never really made it that she thinks is great is called The Sleepy Time Gal, which I've never seen. She says it's the most complex film she's ever done. She, she said she had to chew it every day to get it done. She said that character. She said... She's the most proud of it, of anything she'd ever done. She said it's a magic experience and wish more people had seen it. So, I mean, that stuck in my craw. I got to see this movie. You oh, know? yeah. And, you know, she said working with George Cooker, one of the great Hollywood directors of women and, you know, old-time director. Uh, he said, you know, <laughs> Cooker asked her once, he, he said, you'd work till midnight, wouldn't you? And uh, she said, well, yes, Mr. Cooker, of course I would. And then he said, well, I'm going home. Kind of a setup for a joke line. And, um, yeah, so she just, uh, you know, she loved working for, uh, you know, I mean, she says the directors are the people that make it for her. If there's a good director, she's in. If, it, if yeah. the director isn't isn't great and it's a great part, then it's, she doesn't know for sure. She has to really weigh that. But. Yeah, Eddie and... Muller, who's the noir host, was the guy given, uh, you know, shooting questions. And he, he said he asked her a question. He says he asked every star that he interviews. And he said, Jacqueline, what would be your death house meal? Very noir question. Like right. if you had one last night and you're, you're facing capital punishment, sure. you know, whatever, what would be your meal? And she instantaneously said, prosciutto, scrambled eggs, bread, wine, cheese, and a peach. <laughs> I, I was, yeah, it was kind of bizarre. It was sort of funny, but... Uh... Yeah, well, that, you know, that's a, you know, some of those things that you just don't, uh, that you can get exposure to there. Um, you know, I'd never yeah. heard for, you know, everyone can, can appreciate, I think, anybody who understands a film uh, has at least some level of appreciation for uh, Francois Truffaut. Um, and, you know, some yeah. of those films, especially as you, I think the older you get, I think the more that you can kind of get them a little bit. It's definitely something that you need to have, you know, mature eyes for. And TCM does a great yeah. job of really bringing that stuff um, to um, their network. And, and and as you mentioned, that was even part of uh, a screening there. How how yeah. how yeah. else and how strong is that kind of international flavor at the festival um, you know, beyond this, at least this year, maybe in years past, but specifically this year, was it, was it strong? Was this, you know, the real highlight in that kind of international film? Well, you know, it, it, interestingly, it's, it's always definitely a part. There's foreign movies and, and sort of like uh, independents that don't get a lot of play are always part of the festival. Uh, and, and more and more, I think this year, there were more, there have been more and more obscure films just because, so many of these films you know, have been already shown, like the classics, like the Singing in the Rains and the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the classic uh, noir movies. They're not going to keep showing them year after year. So they're, they're digging deeper, deeper down into film and showing stuff that, you know, that are, you know, even day for night. You know, you would have seen La Dolce Vita. You would have seen Eight and right. a Half. Right, right. You would have seen a lot more films, Agnes Varda movies, Vagabond. 
But now they're getting to, you know, maybe the second tier or maybe the first tier, but just movies that, uh, you know, haven't been shown in the last few years. What I thought was very interesting, John, was that they didn't show any horror movies this year. Mm, yeah, that's and, interesting. And, I mean, there's always horror movies. And they, you know, they showed a sci-fi movie, which I'll talk to you about in a little bit. But they didn't show any horror movies, which I, I you know, I was doing a double take at the uh, program because I thought they're yeah. all, they always show horror movies. And I guess they just figured, you know, we'll take a sabbatical or, you yeah. know, certainly they've shown all the great universal horror films, those you know, first tier 30s and 40s movies. So, you know, they're, I guess they're maybe reconfiguring that or figuring it out or giving it a year off or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, no, that's very interesting. You know, and, and who knows, maybe it's just the audience is, you know, uh, you know, you just don't get so many folks that are kind of, you know, tied into the horror genre, but who knows? Uh, but that's a real interesting yeah, yeah. Um, uh, identification to make. Um, it, it's, yeah. I, yeah. Again, Tom, I, I I am highly jealous as usual. Um, every time we talk about the TCM <laughs> festival, I go, I don't know why I didn't go this year. Um, so, well, you got to come out, John. Yeah, I, mean, I know. I, I know. Well, maybe next um, April will be a little bit more easy for me. So we'll see. Okay, right. That would be nice. Um, well, the last, go yeah, ahead. The no, last please. movie I saw, if I can just talk about that, was uh, When Worlds Collide, which is, yeah. um, you know, that old... 60s sort of sci-fi film about the right. end of the world that, that you know a uh, another planet is coming you know quickly at the you you know at uh, at the earth and it's kind of and so it's it's essentially a colonization movie about building a spaceship and and colonizing this this other planet with the survivors with picked survivors and Barbara Rush who was in the original movie was there and she's like 91. <laughs> and she just looked great. She came and she, you know, was interviewed about it. And, uh, you know, she just thought, you know, it was great, you know, to, to talk about it. And, you know, she just thought it was great to be around. And, uh, you know, didn't have a whole lot of uh, of stuff to say other than that she really enjoyed, uh, you know, talking about it. She said that it was an interesting scientific picture, you know, positing that this could really happen and that, you know, we, even to this day, we think something could like a meteor could happen, but right. you know, she was 21 year old UC Santa Barbara student when pretty much she, she was doing this. And she said that, uh, you know, the people that throughout her career that she was lucky to work with James Mason, Marlon Brando taught her just everything she ever knew. She said Brando was kind of a genius actor, very improvisational, uh, but he could make moments. And he was the most respected actor in Hollywood, she said. So I thought, yeah, it was kind of interesting that she said he could make moments, which is very true, you mm, know. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And oh, and the last person I, 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 I attended uh, a session for was Fred Rude, the producer, you know, along with Coppola uh -huh. on the Godfather films, or he was, right. you know, he's been integrally involved with uh, Coppola over his career. And, uh, yeah, and he's still working. The guy is still uh, getting together, you know, movie projects, and you know, which I think is just amazing. And he said that, you know, as far as Godfather Two went, it took months getting that cut right, you know, just because of the unusual structure, you know, the the uh, flashbacks and then the modern day stuff. You know, they had done it. He said linear, linearly, and that didn't just come off right. He didn't like it, so they. They adhered to this, uh, you know, this jump, this jumping, the jumping a cut from, 
you know, uh, from the early, you know, Don stuff in uh-huh. Sicily and, and then, you know, visiting Sicily with his family right. when he kind of kills, you know, the, uh, the guy that killed his mom and his dad and right. his to, you know, modern day stuff. And he said that that really worked well, but he said to get that right, they just had to really, really, you know, labor over it. And um, he said that in, in Apocalypse Now, Harvey Keitel was originally cast as Willard, the, um, you know, the uh, role that Martin Sheen played. Right. And he was he was cast for, he, they said, for the first month. Then the, they closed the picture right. and recast that lead because he just, and he loved Harvey Keitel. He thinks he's brilliant, but he just wasn't right. And, uh, yeah. you know, then they, they had considered Gene, they had considered Gene even for the Godfather. But, uh, then they, they remembered and they said, well, you know, let's get him in for this. I think he'd be good as Willard. And so, you know, and he that's was. what they did. They got him in for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Fred Ruse is just an amazing, like, if you look at, I guess, um, uh, you know, I mean, he did most of, um, uh, like, as you said, most of, uh, Coppola's films, um, and you know, yeah, and and, right. and and also got his start as a casting director, I guess. Um, so that's you know, true. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, he talked a little bit about that. And, oh yeah, and he talked a lot about, <laughs> excuse me, Sophia Coppola because he was like, I think he, um, yeah, he did he Lost in Translation in his early or her early stuff too. Right, right, yeah, he so, did Lost in Translation, um, and yeah. I, Right. And Marie Antoinette. And I think the Virgin Suicides, maybe. I think he, he right. did something with that, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah he but did. He, he even mentioned that Bob Evans didn't want Nino Rota's score, uh, you know, you know, originally for the film, which he thought was very funny because he, he says you hear it on elevators everywhere. But he said Bob Evans didn't want it. And it was just this constant battle with the front office about, you know, not, you know, kind of overriding certain things that some people wanted, you know, and uh, and they were even thinking of casting Olivier as the wow. Godfather, and I always wondered about that. You know, John George C. Scott was also considered, but I thought Olivier. I can't imagine him in that. And he said the reason why they were thinking of casting him as the Don was that, and this is a movie I've seen. He was he played a Russian in the Shoes of a Fisherman. You know, a movie about you know, the Vatican and, uh, you know, gigantic, uh, you know, the a gigantic kind of a, oh, I don't know what it was. I think there was a grain failure of the, of, uh, of the farming uh, of, you know, the grain output or whatever in China, there were millions and millions of people who were going to starve and die. And that there, there was this, it was all coming to a head in a possible nuclear war. And I think, you know, Olivier played very convincingly this Russian. He had this Russian accent in it, uh-huh. and he and he and Ruth said that's what that's why they were considering him for the Don because if he can do a Russian accent like that, right. maybe he can pull off an Italian accent or whatever. And uh, thank God, I guess that they didn't use him. I mean, I can't imagine anyone but Brando in that right. role. But I just thought that was interesting that. Yeah. That was where they got that idea from the shoes of the fisherman, his <laughs> role as this, uh, you know, Russian uh, diplomat or, I don't know, ambassador, I forget who he was, but, you know, I thought that was cool. Oh, yeah, so. no, that is really cool. Uh, you know, th- yeah. those are the kinds of things you can pick up, all right? Um, yeah. So so this was Ruse talking about, about this, about the, you know, the uh, trials and tribulations of casting Don Corleone? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, George C. Scott, they thought, he didn't really talk much about that, but he did, you know, because there was a titter when he talked about Olivier, like, oh, my God, you know. Yeah, everybody's like, what? He's very British. I mean, you you know, he's about as far from an Italian, you know, mobster as you can think. Yeah. But then he said, well, yeah, no, that's true, but if you see Shoes of the Fisherman, he's, like, really (laughs) convincing as this Russian sort of diplomat, you know, and, uh, and so we kind of, you know, he was part of the conversation. And then, you know, and then Brando, the way he got it was kind of legendary. He just, uh, he was box office, you know, poison. poison back, right. Well, not poison, but he had made the Cromada, this movie that didn't really work. And, and you know, not many people wanted to take a chance on him. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, uh, apparently uh, Francis Coppola, uh, he he said no. He's got to be the Godfather. He's just gonna. He's great. And then they went up to his house on Mulholland Drive and and filmed him. And then the birth of his, of the role really occurred when they were just filming him doing you know you know these these uh, you know method scenes. He was just sort of improvising. Right. And he put you know he put stuff in his mouth because he <laughs> said, well uh, you know I was. You know, in the movie, in the book, the, God- the Godfather previously in an earlier age had been shot in the throat, and right. it's not in any of the movies. But so he probably talked like this, you know. And so, you know, that whole like, you know, the, the classic funny, campy ape, a- you know, accent that everyone apes now is really came up, came into being during that day when Coppola was filming him and doing kind of a, you know, sort of a half-assed screen test up in his house, right, right. up in uh, Mulholland Drive. And he was putting wads of toilet paper in his, <laughs> in his mouth. So he's coming out well, up with the, you know, he's basically with the birth of that character. Just yeah. Improvisationally. I always thought that was very interesting. And Ruth said that that's how it happened. It was just, it was kismet, you know? I mean, it was, sure. it was meant to be so. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. Um, you know, uh, I think that story is in a lot of different places, but but hearing it come from yeah. Fred Ruse yeah. must have been different. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, like corroborated, you know, like yeah. as I'm always sort of comparing, I'm thinking, well, is this really? Or is, yeah. Is, you know, Ruse is basically saying, yeah, that's not right. how it happened. Right, right. And uh, yeah, so, but yeah, I had never heard that thing about Olivia, which I thought was very, very yeah. cool, right? You know, just because I've seen that movie a couple of times. I think it's a TCM movie, Shoes of the Fisherman. They show it every once in a while. Anthony Quinn plays this pope that becomes like he's the first Russian pope. And, you know, so then, you know, this this grain thing happens and where the world is on edge. And and then Olivier comes to talk to him, hoping that between the two of them, they can appeal to the premier of China, who is this sort of militaristic weird guy and you know and uh and you know he's doing the russian accent yeah very funny yeah it's 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 one of those now that you know it's like almost every time i talk to you i think or or and for sure every time you go to the uh, tcm film festival you always come out with 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 great suggestions for me so you know i'm like you know taking notes on the podcast uh shoes of a fisherman no, I, you know, and, uh, you know, this uh, sleepy kind gal. I mean, I, geez, that was completely flew under my radar, and I right. want to find that movie. Yeah, you know, it, it's exactly like this thing. Yeah, it's, 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 it's unfortunate, I think, that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, and I know that, you know, when you worked at Netflix, you know, part of it was they had, you know, kind of, uh, relied on a lot of classic films to get themselves going. Um, and now, right. you know, it's nearly impossible to find, 
um, that there. You have to go to, into other things. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess there's, you know, they had that uh, Criterion collection for a while that you could stream, yeah. and now that there's that Canopy, I guess, is another another one that's out there. But yeah. there's there's ways for people to right. get to this stuff besides being, you know, we don't want to take away from TCM and their app and what they make available. No. But, right. um, you know, with streaming, um, you know, there should be easier access to these things. And unfortunately, um, there's not yet. So hopefully the audience continues to, you know, want to purchase Right. I mean, we yeah. I want to be able to yeah. see some of these things a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I mean, you know, uh, as you well know, Netflix is just sort of, you know, it, it, their more immediate concern is basically remaking, you know, how movies are delivered. You know, I right. mean, you know, that's I mean, you know, creating original content and basically, you know, becoming the, you know, the new sort of paradigm of what a movie studio will be yeah you know i mean you know they're just remaking the whole the whole sort of thing the whole model right which you know we'll see how well they do i mean so far they've been kind of hitting a bat in a thousand with a lot of these you know original programming and uh, movies so we'll see we'll see how it shakes out yeah but yeah and we'll see how it shakes out for tcm you know like we had discussed uh you know it'll be interesting the next few years to see because they're all in with this, uh, you know, kind of, you know, I, I just don't see them marketing or putting, <clears throat> you know, putting an emphasis on old movies, not on the old movies that from the 30s and 40s. I mean, they'll right. never go away, but they're not, you know, I guess they felt that they've covered those and they, you know, they glorified them, they celebrated them enough. And now they got to kind of, you know, as, as the viewership is getting older and younger people are moving into middle age, then, you know, what's, what's the new, as you said, very, very appropriately, what's the new modern classic? How yeah. do you define that? Yeah. And, and I think that's what they're doing right now. And we'll see how that goes. Yeah. You know, I, I think in the next five years, we'll find out, you know, it'll be very vastly different or things will have been tried and failed and some things will succeed. We'll see what the, what the landscape is. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, it is, you know, new ground. I mean, a lot of times we, um, I think we forget that, um, there really has only been sound in films for, you know, uh, you know, a hundred years, maybe a little bit more, even the ones made before, yeah. you know, prior to 1930, even if they did have sound, they weren't very good. Um, the sound wasn't right. very good, but, um, you know, so, you know, when you're finally getting into that era of a hundred years, then, you know, you start looking at classic and how that progresses, um, you know, moving yeah. forward, because, you know, if we think that, you know, with all the talk about, you know, Avengers, uh, end game, um, you know, it's a billion dollar movie. So, you know, what they're going to yeah, think in 50 amazing. years from now, you know, I mean, if, yeah. if, if we don't think that people are going to want to go back and, and see some of these films that, that that are in theaters now and, and how that just changes when you have, you know, a hundred years of it, as you know, when you got started, yeah. you know, when, when you and I both started watching classic films, I think, you know, probably I was in the, in the 1980s, you were in the 1970s somewhere, but, um, yeah, but sure. it still was only, you know, 50 years maybe of classic film. It was like, yeah. that was it, you know, I mean, and as, yeah. and as time goes by, I mean, it's just everything that's in the past starts just gaining, um, so, you know, it'll, it'll yeah. be interesting to see how it changes and, and what we're watching in 50 years and whether you still can watch a Robert Mitchum yeah. um, film noir in black and white, whether you can still even get it. But, 
you'd have to think that there's going to be right. some avenues out there with the way that you can, you know, distribute this to people. Um, you know, now, you know, well, yeah. it's yeah. a lot easier. You know, it's interesting what you say, John. It's very interesting because, you know, just the way, you know, just the pacing of movies, you know, of, of these movies that we sort of grew up watching, the vintage movies on TV or, you know, in rep houses, you know, movies like, uh, you know, To Have and Have Not or Casablanca or, or whatever, or noir films or, or just about anything, the pacing is a lot slower. Now, I mean, with Avengers and especially, the you know, the Marvel Universe and a lot of these movies, you know, uh, you know, mainstream Hollywood movies, the pacing is just so quick because people's attention spans, kids, right. are just, they're so, you know, their attention spans are so short that they can't relax into a character. It's just a different way of movie making. Yeah. So when you say that, you know, 100 years from now, I mean, movies like Out of the Past, say with Mitchum or something, might right. not even be watchable to the, I mean, I hope they are, but like to a lot of the audience because they'll just say this is too slow. Uh-huh. You know, almost like old, old silent film movies. When you watch like a Lillian Gish movie, you know, I mean, it just takes so long because, you know, it's, you know, the, the acting and the, you know, the, um, the visuals are in you know, the visual acting and all of that is the physical acting. It's just so much, it, 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 it's much more moderated, it's slower. And, you know, so even to someone, say, my age that grew up on faster paced movies, right. watching a really old silent, it's just tough to get through. Unless sure. it's a comedy, right. which to me, the slap never dates. I mean, that's just right. universal for it never dates. But... But um, a lot of the old melodramas, I mean, they're really tough to get through. But for audiences of my grandmother's time, I mean, they, that was perfect. I mean, that was there was nothing wrong with that pace. Yeah, they were, so, they, they were just impressed they were watching moving pictures, right? You know, so it was... Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all the difference of, yeah. of, of perspective, but you know, for sure it's, yeah. uh, you know, it was interesting that, you know, and before we digress too much, I know we were talking about, you know, Turner classic movies, but there was a, <laughs> a story that I'd seen, um, I think this past week and it said, okay, you know, you've, you've, you've watched all the Marvel MCU. How about watching an old film noir to just give your brain a break and, you know, written oh, by, written great. by somebody in their twenties, you know, and so you gotta hope that there's that. Um, you know, that recognition there and how long it's going to take us to get burned out with CGI. And as we all know, there's been those, you know, ups and downs in, in, uh, uh, in, in filmmaking and what happened in the early seventies really kind of changed the way that it went and everything got hyper real, um, you know, know, there for, for, you know, for a good 10 years, you know, so maybe we're due for that too, just because of tastes change and everybody just wants what's different and everything that's old is new again. So, you know, you yeah. never know. I mean, uh, but you're right. It's definitely a different, you know, you can feel the pacing in modern films. Yeah. They don't want to yeah. lose an audience, especially when yeah. when they might just be seeing it on streaming and you have to depend not on them getting up and walking out of the theater, but just using their remote control because they're watching it first run in their 50-inch screen at home. It is a different dynamic, yeah. and you're right. Whether Whether that'll ever break out of that because of the dynamic, who knows, but... Yeah. As long as there's classic films and folks like you out there, Tom, people won't ever forget, right? Well, and back at you, John. I mean, you know, I yeah, I I, I think quality is quality, and I don't care what era it is. Yep. Uh, you know, it could be a silent film, it could be a film from the '30s, it could be a film from you know 2080. I mean, if it's a good film, if there's quality and intelligence and art 
usefulness in it, then it's going to be, it's going to have something for every audience. It's going to stand the test of time. Sure. It's, it's like the great American songbook, uh-huh. you know, great songs from the, you know, the, the big five composers, Berlin, Porter, Gershwin, you know, whatever. They're just so well constructed, those songs. That's why, and this is totally tangential, getting off the, the <laughs> track, sorry. But, you know, but, uh, you know, that's why a lot of rockers or whatever do those catalogs when, you know, they can't rock anymore. Because right. these, these, these great standards are just, they're impervious to, to aging. They're just, the, the quality and craftsmanship is there, and it's never going to go out of date, and they're, they're evergreen. So I hope that, you know, with films, too, the great movies, and uh, maybe even the not so great, but the quirky movies will always have a have kind of an audience. You know, maybe not as big as they they had when they first came out, but I think there'll always be people that, when they're interested in film, they'll they'll seek out these movies. You know, and and be able to to look at them. Yeah, and so. especially if they just remake them like they have a tendency to do, and then everyone realizes <laughs> yeah, the original right. was so much better. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, you're right about that. Yeah. Uh, well, Tom, it, uh, you yeah, know, it, that it, can, yeah, that can be a whole, uh, a whole other podcast show. on just, itself. Uh, uh, poorly made yeah, remakes. Yeah, just, uh, <laughs> just us bitching and moaning about remakes. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. Yeah, the yeah. the one thousand worst remakes ever ever done. Um, oh, I think we oh, can man. make. <laughs> I think we can make a yeah, list it, easy. Um, I think we, I think you could come up with that, John. I think we could do it. I know. Yeah, it. I think I might want to, um, you know, never come out of my home again. But yeah, I think we could do that. But you know, Tom, it's always great to join your podcast um, and to kind of host. Yeah, the, no, you know, the once a year. Yeah, it's always great talking about movies, John, with you. You're. Uh, you, you're a, you're a fan and you're knowledgeable and it's a lot of fun. So same here. And uh, next time, you know, Tom will be back by himself um, and, and and speaking to someone great in the industry. But Tom, again, thanks for for uh, going to TCM, sharing it with everybody and with me. Um, we all live vicariously with you, so thank you for that. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.